This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin. Have you ever thought, I'm stuck? What's wrong with me? Is this all there is? Today's guest is Satya Doyle Bayak, and she hears these refrains regularly in her psychotherapy practice, where she works with what she calls quarter lifers. These are individuals that are roughly between the ages of 16 and 36. Satya understands their frustration. Some clients have done everything quote unquote right. They graduated, got a great job, met that partner, yet they're unfulfilled and worse, unclear on what to do next. Satya calls these quarter lifers stability types. Others that are totally uninterested in the prescribed path, well, she calls those meaning types. While society is quick to label the emotions and behaviors of this age group as generational traits, Satya sees things differently. She believes these struggles are part of the developmental journey of quarter life, a distinct stage that every person goes through and which has been virtually ignored by popular culture and psychology. Today, we'll discuss this new approach to a quarter-life crisis, even if you're not in that stage anymore, why it matters, and we'll engage with Satya's four pillars of quarter-life development, which, of course, is all described in her book called Quarter Life. And now, this is the Career Contessa podcast. As a millennial who has dealt with the tug of war of do you play it safe? Do you have that secure job relationship? Or do you just throw it all out because you're looking for meaning and purpose? The term quarter life crisis isn't exactly new to me. But what is new to me is psychotherapist Satya Doyle Bayak and her new book, Quarter Life. So Satya believes the key is finding a comfortable middle ground where you satisfy most of those needs. And her book is a guide to striking the balance. Satya, welcome to the show. I'm so, so excited to have you here. Well, I am too. I'm already giddy to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And before we hit record, we were talking about some stuff and we were like, okay, we have to hit record before we get too deep into this because it was all really important stuff about midlife crisis, quarter life crisis. And I want to start with what we just talked about, which is you said people have this expectation that we're not supposed to have a crisis, right? And like this tug of war isn't supposed to exist. So can we start with that assumption and like, why, like, why are we as a society just not okay with being content? Like, why does it always have to be growth and more? And if you're not, then you must be the opposite, which is in crisis, right? 
Oh my goodness. Well, so we could have, I don't know, <laughs> 10 conversations easily, Yeah, different conversations on that. Let me start by saying something that I experienced growing up over and over again, which is this very deep felt sense that I was supposed to be climbing as if on a bar graph towards, yes. right? Did you have that experience? Yes, totally. I mean, it was like a check a box at, yeah. on the way up yeah. too, right? Yeah, it was a very embodied experience, almost like you feel like you're dizzy or you're nauseous or something. This was like a deeply embodied experience where the feeling was I was just supposed to continue moving upwards. And I, but I also heard it, you know, you express this in different ways, but studying history, studying geopolitics, you know, all studying this notion of the quote unquote developing world and the developed world, there's all these ways that we've been trained through capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, all the social systems, that there is progress happening in theory. And I think certainly our generation is very clear that progress is not happening the way that we were told it was going to happen. But also it's really baked into, into developmental psychology. And this, I had to do a lot of detoxing and research, but it was sort of both my own deep process of uncovering what was going on in the midst of researching to make sense of why developmental psychology really rested on the same principles, which is essentially you're supposed to climb this ladder, supposedly psychologically, but it's really tying our psychology to the economy or to patriarchy. Yes. So that it's not actually about self-development at all. That's been the, that's how we've sort of been trained. It's not really about self-development. It's not really about maturity. It's really about get a job, buy a house, find achievements, a partner, achievements, acquisition, yes. right? And that yeah. I think has made many of us sick, unwell, unhappy, disoriented, confused, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's just the preamble of all this. So the midlife crisis was then this kind of invented notion that, well, it turns out if you climb that ladder until you're 40, there is a crisis that shows up because in fact, it's not satisfying to just climb that ladder. So I'm kind of trying to deconstruct that whole thing and say, Hey, what are we really supposed to be doing with psychological development in adulthood? Yeah. What's the, what's the more complex story? And also, so when I graduated college, oh, nine, not a great time to graduate college, but quarter life crisis was like a new term that was coming out. And I think maybe it was coming out because it was such a culmination of like, whoa, bad timing slash you had this upbringing of like, if you check these box, like again, success was this formula one plus one was going to equal two. And so you had this like, just like combustion of confusion and loss, but like there really was a crisis, I guess, like the financial crisis happening. How do you define quarter life? And then also your thoughts on the term quarter life crisis? Abby Wilner, I believe is her name, created this term quarter life crisis around 1997 or something like that. I speak about it in my book briefly, but the idea was that people were having these early midlife crises, which is to say that there was all this disorientation because it wasn't working for many of us. I mean, I was again, yeah. part of that generation. What I talk about with quarter life is what I call quarter life beyond the crisis, which is to say that in fact, there is a stage of life that nobody talks about. If they do talk about it, it's sort of spoken about generally as either with some pejorative like young adulthood or delayed adolescence, or there is some, I think, quite good developmental psychology from a man, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. I disagree with some of it, but I think it's solid foundation, but he calls it emerging adulthood. And the notion is still that you're trying to get somewhere. For me, it's 
it's trying to strip all that down and just say there is a stage of life. It is a stage of adulthood between adolescence and midlife. Let's call it quarter life. I call it quarter life. And let's talk about developmentally what that could and should be divorced again from kind of economic and social gender roles, social expectations. Yeah, which is very hard for people because you're you're really brought up on the, you know, cultural expectations, right? And it's like you go and you meet a new person and right away it's like what are your achievements? What are the boxes that you can check? You know, no one's asking you like what's your psychologically how are you doing with this, totally. you know? So certainly not millennials. Gen Zers are much better at that. Gen Zers are working yeah. more on divorcing those two things. Yes. Well, and and hopefully us millennials will get there. So you talk about in your book, there's stability types and meaning types. Can you talk about that and and the differences between those two? For sure. And let me say at the outset, I don't really believe in binaries, but I set this up in the way that binaries exist to try to find wholeness in the middle, to try to understand ourselves on this spectrum. So what I have understood both from living through this time and working as a psychotherapist specifically with this time of life is that there are people who more or less feel comfortable with the social expectations and social goals that have been placed before them. Or if they don't feel comfortable, they know how to play the game. And so even if they're kind of dying inside from anxiety or stress or a variety of symptoms, they know how to play the game and they play it. And uh, they feel sort of tied to these ideas of stability and external expectations, right? Uh, For shorthand, I call those folks stability types. Stability types, clinically, whether you're reading the book or you're seeing a therapist, often what is happening is more of that midlife crisis. People are seeking meaning then in some way, but they don't often have any words to explain it. It's a very ethereal feeling. And so stability types in my typology and what I lay out in the book are really needing to start moving towards the other side and and moving towards wholeness, which is engaging more often with their inner world, with the right brain, with embodied creativity in a different way, just embodiment in general, and kind of seeking how to ground out because they've been climbing for so long. Uh, The opposite, or rather the, the other part of this typology are meaning types. And meaning types historically are more the artists, they're more the outsiders in some way, and they tend to really eschew the stability goals of culture. They find them dumb, mundane, meaningless, soul-sucking, or impossible, you know? And so the goal then for meaning types when I'm working with them, and I, you know, I, I have different, we all have different aspects of this typology inside of ourselves. So, but I know this very well from my own lived experience is you need some proposition that makes sense to you to also participate in the world so it doesn't eat you alive, right? You you do need to participate in the economy in some way, typically. You need to take care of yourself. And so there's often the psychological work of how to get somebody's buy-in to say, let's do this life thing. Let's figure this out. Yes, the planet is a mess, but you're here. You know, Mm -hmm. so how do we build towards stability in a way that feels okay to you? Is there any way, is there any middle ground? Like do, do any, does anyone just sort of naturally find a balance between those two things? Or do you find in your practice, people generally lean very heavily one way or the other? There are definitely people in the middle ground. There's no question, maybe even the majority, right? I mean, it's sort of a bell curve in this 
But I think even when people start to understand more of these two sides of the goals, and even just the way it's understood as inner life and external life, right brain and left brain, I mean, there's a variety of ways this is part of, you know, the balance of the opposites that we're familiar with. We can start working towards those things ourselves. So when we feel like we've achieved something, but start to feel kind of empty inside, then there's more direction of, well, what's the next step versus just more acquisition? You know, Mm -hmm. you had a metaphor in your book that was about fire and the fireplace and the the meaning is the fire and the stability is the fireplace and kind of like finding a way to get those two things to work together. And the reason why I like the metaphor is I'm a very visual learner or a person who's like, I I like the metaphor so then I can try to understand because sometimes psychology, it's like especially if you're very type A, I'm, I'm sure I'm a stability type, is that it's sometimes hard for me to take it and then apply it to real life. But for this sure. metaphor makes sense to me for finding if you're a person who feels like you're very stable and you're missing that meaning, or if you're a person who has a lot of meaning and purpose, but you're kind of missing that stability. Can you explain that a little bit too? Absolutely. So, so yes. Yeah, so stability is more the fireplace, which can feel really very empty and cold without the fire. And a lot of stability types who feel as though they've done everything they're supposed to do, they built the structures, right? It's pretty, it's attractive, it's well-constructed, but there's something empty and cold about life, right? So we need to then speak to stability types to say, hey, you know, it does suck. (laughs) You did what you're supposed to do according to society, but society's off track. And so we actually need some kind of vibrancy and life and energy and fire and something natural too. Fire is wild. It's not human made, right? It's part of Mm -hmm. nature. So on the other side, for meaning types, fire can run rampant and be destructive and be too wild. We are human. You know, we are part of civilization too, whether we like it or not. And so we also need a fireplace to kind of hold the fire and contain all that energy and power and creativity. And that means for folks who are more inclined to the inner world, more inclined towards creativity and and that kind of passion and energy, or even, you know, opinions and passion, there also needs to be some structure and and containment for it. So the goal, as always, and you're, you know, you're asking about our people somewhere in the middle here, absolutely. And that's the goal of how in our own ways do we balance these things so we can have a a beautiful fireplace with with a thriving fire inside. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about our sponsor, Inside Tracker. After going through a period of some pretty bad chronic health issues, I've always had the mindset that it's so important to take care of myself. But sometimes you just aren't sure what areas exactly that you should be improving. I decided to give Inside Tracker a try, and when I received my results, I was surprised to see that some of my biomarkers were not within the optimal range. Inside Tracker provided me with personalized recommendations on things I could do to improve my health, such as making changes to my diet and exercise routine. At first, I'm not going to lie, I was a bit skeptical of these recommendations, but I did decide to give them a try and I started incorporating certain vitamins into my diet and made some lifestyle changes. Within a few weeks, I started to notice a difference. I had more energy throughout the day and I noticed that my overall mood improved and I just felt more positive and focused. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity using data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers to provide you with science-backed recommendations to optimize your health. One of the things I love most about Inside Tracker is that they test and provide optimal ranges for over 40 biomarkers, including magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, and ferritin. 
Inside Tracker was founded by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT, so you can be assured of their expertise. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you sign up at insidetracker.com/contessa. So, if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit insidetracker.com/contessa. Hi, I'm Claire and I'm Erica. We're the hosts of A Thing or Two. We are professional enthusiasts constantly on the hunt for the products, books, and trends that should be on your radar, and we share them with you every Monday, whether it's marinated olive oil that we're putting on everything, a deep dive on pillows, or the fact that suddenly gas stoves are on everyone's outlist for 2023. We challenge the friends we invite on the show to bring their own favorite thingies too. Like when Ellen Van Dusen spilled about the IG account that's keeping her current with the youths. We also love a gift guide. We take listener questions, Dear Abby style, and tell you what to get your vegan minimalist coworker or your sister-in-law who loves to hunt. So be sure to listen and follow A Thing or Two with Claire and Erica wherever you listen to podcasts. So we talked about quarter life and you said it's, it's essentially this stage between the midlife and out of adolescence you know, that's a big range. And I would assume that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast either are in that or they're like me and they're in either if they're not in this midlife side of things, they're getting close to it. Is this something where this stage is just sort of like a rite of passage? It's like, what's the goal for the quarter lifer? Like, do do we just like, you know, get through it and get to the next stage of life? Or what's what's our goal? Like, what can we... I guess advice for the person who's in this right now, and maybe it does identify with one of these types, or maybe is saying I'm somewhere in the middle, but it still feels like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in this weird tug of war kind of constantly. And I'm sort of exhausted by that. Well, look, I mean, the goal, what is the goal of life really? Like, I don't mean to get, I mean, I get existential pretty fast, (laughs) but, but I think if all we're doing is climbing the steps and climbing the ladder and getting to the next stage, we reach death pretty soon. And what's the answer then? Right. Yeah. So for me, it's always sort of trying to find some degree of balance and peace in every moment, in every uh, season of our life, in every year of our life, ideally. Obviously, I mean, we can talk about privilege and obstacles, and there's so many things that get in the way of somebody finding peace in this world. And there's so many different tragedies we could speak about around that. But I think the essence of life is some kind of psychological and whole person development where we do feel safe and secure. And we also feel that our life has some purpose and meaning and value. And so it's not then just about getting to the next stage. The goal is really finding sooner than later so we can enjoy as much of our life as possible or we can thrive in the times of our life when thriving is possible to really feel both that we that we have community and love, you know, and safety and security and, and all those things. So I know yeah. that is not, I mean, again, that's not- No, I understand this because it's yeah. almost like instead of, constantly going for the more and more and more, the progress, the achievement, like being content is, is just as equal of the goal than the person who's always. And I, but I think so many of us are wired to always like more and more and more progress, achievement, achievement. So you have to, to your point, really rewire some things to be like, being content is amazing. Like, or I, you know, I am a big fan of the good enough job. And it's something we've talked about on the podcast versus like, I don't believe in this dream job thing. And I'm sure it's somewhat related to sort of like 
you know, you can get the dream job and then you still feel hollow. The dream job right. is the beautiful fireplace. Right. And it's, I think so, especially I think after, I think COVID maybe brought some of this stuff more to the surface. I think some of us were so distracted with the achievements and the chasing right. this and chasing that. I know I can speak to that in my own life and the slowdown of COVID I do think gave people somewhat of an opportunity to think about that. Like, what is the meaning of my life? Or I don't want to get too woo woo for people, but like, what is like, what makes me content, right? Like what, why more and more and more, why can't I be happy with good enough and recognizing like, maybe I don't need to chase that thing. And I think that's a, I think that's really hard for perfectionists and big time achievers because some people that's all they know. For sure. And so, you know, I think there has to be a sales pitch that lands even when, when somebody comes to my office, who's in that type, and I say this in the book, but I have to typically have a sales pitch if I want them to not bail out of therapy in three sessions, because I can't say, check this box, check this box, check this box, and you're going to be just yeah. fine. In fact, it's, it really is deconstructing a lot of the internalized messages that say, if you just do all of these things and get all of these things, you're going to be very happy. The tragedy yes. is that they don't bring happiness. <laughs> Sometimes they bring, they certainly can bring joy and peace and security. I mean, there's so many things in the material world that can help us thrive and live, but not unto themselves, right? You still need that essence of existence. So, yeah. So it does mean kind of <laughs> detoxing from messages and asking like, but is this, is this working to bring joy and a sense of freedom and, and you know, beauty in your life. And if so, good, there's nothing wrong. You don't have to fix anything. Yeah. Right. But if there's something wrong, there's a new direction to explore. Mm -hmm. Let's explore that. What are the four pillars that you describe for quarter life in the book? I talk about the four pillars of growth in quarter life, which are areas of self-development that I offer up just as sort of touch points to consider and explore and this really has to do, I mean, it has to do with adult development in general. I actually think there's a lot of midlifers and, and people in their elderly years who have not attended to them. And what I'm trying to say is the sooner we attend to these things in adulthood, really the freer and more abundant our lives can be. So those four pillars are separate, listen, build, and integrate. And separate or separation is is a really critical and kind of is a process that takes years and that we're all going to do forever in a way, but it has to do with shifting out of dependency towards independence. But to do that psychologically, say, you know, to be assessing what our power parents raised us and if we still believe the things they believe, if we if we actually have anxiety or if it's their anxiety, you know, if we need to figure out how to spend our own money and make our own money versus spend theirs or, you know, or if they are constantly asking us for money, what that relationship is about. So, I mean, I could go on and on because for everyone, it's something else, but, but separation is, is a deeply attuned asking and exploring of old relationships and turning them into new relation, relationships for adulthood versus that way that we're raised in childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Listening is about learning to truly understand ourselves in some way, listen to our bodies, listen to our instincts, noticing ourselves in more attuned ways than, again, we're typically taught in society, or that is very often labeled, mislabeled narcissism by society, a very extroverted society. 
to build is pretty intuitively more of that stuff we're, we're comfortable with. It's about constructing the life we want. But I really try to tie it back to the listening so that we're not building a life for expectations that are meaningless to us, but actually how we want to live our own existence. And integration is, you know, as you can imagine, kind of a combination of all of those things. And it's bringing the stability and meaning that we've uncovered and created more into alignment. And I talk in the book and I, I use four case studies in the book and and the end with integration, it's really noticing these kind of remarkable moments of rebirth and joy that I see regularly with clients where they are in a place in their life that they couldn't have conceived was possible before because they took the time to really genuinely engage with their own self-work versus just the external pursuit of goals and expectations. Yeah. I mean, this is like really hard work. It's really hard work. Yeah, yeah. That you're describing. And I'm sure it's not done in a three month, you know, like program, right? Can you share an example, like one of the case studies that you provide in the book, maybe not the whole story of them, because we want people to buy the book also, but like maybe just, and I hate even saying like before and after, because it isn't really an after it's more of a like inter- integration, yeah. like what, the path. I want to use the right words that can you share? Yeah. The first person that comes to mind in the book is a woman named Mira. Uh, Mira is an Indian American woman. And I think she's 31. When we start working together, she's a lawyer. She's recently married. She had a beautiful wedding and really she's very stability type and she's a soulful, beautiful person, but really went about life checking the boxes and felt very comfortable doing so, right? But when we start working together, she expresses to me a very vague and confusing feeling of not of something not being quite right and she can't put her finger on it and she has never talked to anyone about it cuz she can't explain it. She's not really ever spoken to her husband about it. And so part of our work is supporting her to listen to that and to start talking about it more with the people who love her. But it turns out that there's grief. Her mother passed away five years before we started working together, and she's not ever fully processed that or spent time with that and a number of other things. So what ends up happening is she really needs to acknowledge that she's miserable at her job. She's totally burned out. Uh, You know, this is all pre-COVID, so some of it is familiar to folks who experienced a lot of downtime during COVID. I mean, of course, some people just ratcheted up work completely. Yeah. But she we worked on her slowing down and using paid time off that she had accrued and stepping back. And for her, part of what she really realized she wanted was she wanted to get pregnant. She wanted to start a family. And she also had this whole other side of her that I had never heard a word about for many months of working together, which is she had wanted to be a painter and she was excelling as a painter in college and then completely shut it down because of its impracticality. And so whether or not she now becomes a painter or never is a lawyer again is not the point. For Mira, it was about letting her emotional life out, letting her right brain play, letting her creativity be expressed, and also letting this more intimate, vulnerable side of her be a part of her marriage. All of that kind of needed to emerge for her instead of stay quite closed off. So for her, that was the fireplace in the fire, right? And there's a lot of different ways that Mira and I got there, uh, which I, of course, talk about in the book. But 
I'll, I'll pause there. Yes. That's some of the beginning, middle and end of her story. I mean, I love it. And I'm imagining people are listening to this saying, you know, replace the word lawyer and, you know, what she's doing for something else. But like a lot of people identify with that. We have people at Career Contessa tell us all the time, you know, I don't love my job, but, but they're not sure what the next step is, right? It's like, you can, maybe you can acknowledge something feels off. That's sort of step one, but the step two, three, four, five, six is then what do you do about it? And I think your book illustrates one, it makes you feel not alone. It's like, here's kind of why you feel this way. And and so you're not alone in that, but then also here is the beginning of some of the things that you can do. And I think that is, I think it's very hard to write books about stuff like this because it's hard for the person who's living it to even explain it in words, right? Like being able to explain your emotion in words, let alone write an entire book. That's like trying to help people with that. Did you experience that when you were writing the book? Oh, for sure. And, And also a lot of desire for me to, I mean, whether it's from my editors who, I mean, they nudged me in very important directions. But, you know, we want, people want to know what the steps are, right? Yeah, they want the answer. They want the answer. And so there is, there was a lot of kind of push and pull in various ways. And even still, I read some reviews that are like, I just kind of, you know, I mean, they're, most of the reviews luckily have been very positive, but when they're sort of, but I do wish she'd kind of told me what to do. And then they, this has happened a number of times in reviews and they sort of laugh. They're like, haha, I guess I'm a stability type. And that's what she's saying, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But so it's all, I mean, there's some playfulness in it that I find kind of funny, but it is, it's hard to find a way to bring a reader along or a client along to say, this is ethereal. I'm sorry that it's ethereal, but it kind of is because we're, we don't know why we're alive. I don't know why I'm alive. (laughs) You know, I don't know what life is about. I don't know what death is about. I don't know what we're doing here, but I'm doing my best, my best to stay aligned with that versus to pretend like what we're doing here is capitalism or what we're doing here is getting to the top of the mountain because I know enough. We know enough from the midlife crises of our parents it turns out that's not the case. So let's try to yeah. do this differently from the start. Yeah. What about you get asked for tips on how to find a therapist? You know, someone's listening to this and they recognize like, I really want to invest in this and I want to buy the book, but I also maybe want to work with a therapist. How do you find a therapist or some mental health expert who can help you work through this? Well, it's a great question. And it's also a little complicated because there are so many different kinds of therapy. And so I won't get too technical. People find therapists in all sorts of ways. I mean, I will say I just wrote 10 pages or so on this for the paperback that's coming out in July. So there will be many more. So wait until July. Yeah, there will be many <laughs> no, more kidding. details in that. Okay. So I will say, I mean, there's, you know, uh, whether you're using like the psychology today directory online, which generally is very good, or things like BetterHelp, which Mm-hmm. is I've never used. I actually don't know therapists who are on it, but I know that I, I have friends who have used it, which is just to say there's lots of ways to find a therapist, I think now. But generally, the work that I do is more psychodynamic. These are different buzzwords you can explore. Psychodynamic, mm-hmm. humanistic, Jungian. I'm very deeply rooted in Jung's psychology, which is part of depth psychology. That's D-E-P-T-H, depth psychology. And it's psychology that then is more going to be oriented around the unconscious or these kind of ethereal things versus really keeping you away from that, which is generally, I mean, there's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists who actually are quite psychodynamic. I mean, this is why it gets complicated, but generally speaking, behavioral therapy is not what I'm talking about. 
There's also trauma-informed work and somatic work that's very valuable for helping bring us back into the meaning of our lives versus just trying to fix problems. So mm -hmm. that's those are the buzzwords you can kind of start exploring as you find a therapist. And then the majorly important thing is you like the person you're working with and you respect the yeah. person you're working with. The relationship is what changes us more than anything. That mutuality, that being seen and witnessed and feeling, you know, feeling believed, feeling understood, those things help transform our lives. So really, it's so important to find somebody you enjoy working with. Yeah. And we're talking about, obviously, just having the privilege to find this. But I, I think, again, there are a lot of amazing resources, obviously your resources too. And one thing I've found always be helpful. I talk a lot about it on the show is like, you might have a friend who is also wanting to explore this kind of work and you guys could create, you know, your own mini book club where you read quarter life Absolutely. and you ask the tough questions and you keep each other accountable to the work that's in there because it's not, it's not one of those books that it's a one and done. This is my opinion. It's not a one and done. It's like a work through it's a comeback. You know, there are maybe some, sometimes where we have to take a break and go back to it. So I guess that's, I'm oh, sorry, go well, on. That's, that's so true. And I, I mean, and there's all sorts of ways that we can engage in art practices, art classes, as you say, book groups, yoga classes that again, arguably are not just about exercise or reaching something ways we can right. into our bodies. Right. The other important thing is that th I wish that therapy was universally available and that we had universal health care. So, you know, I wish that therapy was not associated with privilege. It drives me crazy because to me, it's a human right. But most health insurance now, thanks to Obamacare, does is required to cover therapy. So if you can get health insurance through Obamacare, they're usually, I mean, I don't know state by state, but there should be many sessions available to you as uh, part of that as well. So hopefully increasingly we are finding ways to make this more universally available for people. Mm -hmm. And just as a closing note, what is one thing you want to leave people who are in the quarter life, maybe <laughs> getting out of the quarter life? What's a goal? What's a wish, a hope, you know, what's one piece of advice you have for them? Sure. Uh, I'll offer a few things that are concrete and practical and may feel kind of basic, but are so important, I think, for all of our mental health and things that I remind clients of a lot. First, eat protein in the morning. Protein sets us up for good mental health and emotional health in the mornings in ways that I feel like I'm still learning, but it's one of those small pieces of advice that I, I really wish I had fully understood earlier in my life and that I try to drill into clients who are having huge ups and downs with moods and energy. Um, protein in the morning. I would say good sleep whenever you can possibly get it. Consistent good sleep. And the last thing is it's so important to just hold something back for yourself. And what I mean by that is that not everything needs to be monetized. Not everything needs to be on social media. Having a private life, a private creative life, private life when it comes to relationship or intimacy or connection, there are things that the soul really needs to retain for itself to be in relationship internally. So that's what I would say. I would say hold something back for yourself as well as good food in the morning and good sleep. Can you share your resources? And we'll also link to these in the show notes. Yeah. So my book is Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. It should be available anywhere you buy books. 
I also just launched a Substack called The Quarter Lifer, which is my name, satyadoylebayak.substack.com and my website, satyabayak.com, et cetera. Oh, I love it. I told you I was going to fangirl about this conversation. And if it wasn't for the timer, I would keep going with questions, but it's a, a built-in, you know, you have to stop. But I love all the work you're doing. Thank you. I said it at the beginning, but I wish this book had been available when I had graduated college and I was kind of working through those early years. But I think even so, it has been so helpful to look back and also recognize certain things. I definitely go more stability side and it's almost like giving me permission to look into the meaning part a lot more. And I, I sometimes you just need someone else to, to give you that permission. So thank you. And I think your work is amazing and I will link to all of it in the show notes. So thanks thank for coming you, on the show today. Truly, it's so meaningful to hear that. It's super valuable to me. I love your work too. And I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Don't forget to rate and review our show. It really, really helps. And it tells the algorithms, hey, this show is great. Why don't we recommend it to more people? And we link to all of Satya's resources in the show notes, including her book, Quarter Life. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.